Hello, everyone, and welcome to Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham. This podcast is the venue I use to do what is known as public theology, Christian theology applied to the public square. And today I want to speak to what has risen to become uh, one of the biggest debates within the public square, the issue of gender. Uh, recently, I tweeted out some thoughts. Um, by the way, I've, I don't think I've ever given out my social media stuff on the podcast. If you do want to follow along with um, my uh, thoughts and commentary and occasional snark and whatnot, um, I am most active. I'm almost exclusively active on Twitter, at TCPC Robert. Uh, you can't find me on Facebook. I just don't do Facebook much except for uh, church communication stuff. But I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter. Um, it, it comes and goes. And you can follow me there at, at TCPC Robert. Uh, but anyway, I tweeted out some thoughts on masculinity. And it caused a bit of a stir, somewhat on Twitter, but more so privately with friends that um, I love and trust reaching out to me uh, with some disagreements. And, and I quickly realized that I worded my point poorly. And Twitter doesn't allow for nuance. So it would be best for me to record my thoughts here. Uh, where I have the freedom to flesh them out in longer form. I think part of the controversy, and I should have known this, is that what I tweeted was connected to Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro, who, you know, if you don't know, they are conservative provocateurs who who um, have made a fortune just, you know, speaking brazenly and uncharitably from a conservative perspective. So here's the controversy. The recent cover of Vogue magazine featured popular musician Harry Styles in a dress. So Candace Owens did what she does and railed against it and used it as an opportunity to say, our culture needs to bring back manly men. Then Ben Shapiro retweeted Candace Owens and did what he does, which was make the same point, only in a more thoughtful and articulate way. Then I retweeted Shapiro with my thoughts, and I think people thought that I was agreeing with Owens and Shapiro, but in reality, I was trying to use their perspective to make a, a different point entirely. But I don't think it did a good job of making my point, so I'm going to make my point here. So what I was trying to address was the crisis of masculinity in our culture. But I was trying to redefine what that crisis actually is. Here's what I said, quote, An underappreciated factor to Trump's appeal, along with guys like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, is that they represent a middle finger to the crisis of masculinity in our culture. The problem, however, is that they embody a machismo pendulum swing. But Christian men are riding that pendulum swing because they are not finding a compelling alternative in their churches. American Christianity thinks it's virtuous to shame masculinity, and then we wonder why men in particular are leaving Christianity. I have four sons, and my goal for them is to be meek alpha males, like the Jesus our family follows. I seek to embolden their glorious strength and then demand that that same strength be used for noble purposes. End of the tweet. And it was the fact that I used the word alpha that seemed to upset people, which I, I probably should have known. I, I, I said meek alpha males. It's, it's a provocative term. I admit that. I borrowed it from scholar Anthony Bradley, who himself is a bit provocative in this area. But the point is that even invoking the word alpha seemed to upset people. And I think therein lies the crisis of the crisis of masculinity. Alpha is viewed exclusively through the lens of dominance, aggressiveness, perhaps even toxic 
masculinity. And I understand that. And perhaps the term is too loaded and should just be abandoned altogether. But the point I was trying to make, albeit poorly, was that in my home, I'm trying to redefine the word alpha for my sons according to the picture of biblical manhood. Now, terms aside, I do think that redefinition is crucial. Whether we use the word alpha or not, I don't care. But I do think redefining manhood is crucial because I believe my original point still stands. If the church does not present a compelling alternative of manhood, then we will continue to lose men to the machismo movement that has arisen as a protest to the changing landscape of gender in our culture. And yes, I do think this is an underappreciated part of Donald Trump's appeal that nobody talks about. Of course, I think a man who brags about grabbing women by the genitals and then dismisses it as locker room talk, of course, I think this is the antithesis of masculinity. But my point is that if we are unable to properly and compellingly define masculinity, or if we seek to fully eradicate the entire concept of masculinity, then yes, we should continue to expect men to embrace toxic visions of masculinity. And that, I argue, is the crisis of masculinity. So here's the crisis, I think. Our culture, it seems to me, is offering us two visions of manhood. One is that there is no such thing as manhood. It's an archaic cultural construct that needs to be abandoned. The other vision is the counterreaction, an attempt to recapture a cultural misogyny of times gone by. And it would seem that men feel pressed to choose between these two cultural options. So allow me to carefully outline another way forward that I think is rooted in a biblical theology of gender. There absolutely is no way to read the Bible with an honest assessment and come away with any other conclusion than Scripture teaches a difference between men and women. From the beginning, we are told male and female, he created them. Now, we need to be reminded that historically speaking, that statement would be taken as self-evident. And it remains self-evident, globally speaking. The male-female binary is only controversial in Western secular society, predominantly elite Western educated circles. So, to my Progressive friends, how serious are we about diversity? Because if you go to Africa, Asia, Middle East, Latin America, Eastern Europe, basically anywhere but Western Europe, America, and Canada, and and I take it further to say large metropolitan centers of Western Europe, um, America, and Canada. If you go anywhere outside of these areas, then you need to ready yourself for a strong aversion to what we have done and are doing with gender. But that, that said, I do understand that in our cultural context, the gender binary is a very controversial thing and needs more than a few tweets to understand, and I should have known that. So let me summarize the biblical picture of gender this way. The Bible teaches that there are differences between men and women, but there is more commonality than differences. Let me start with the differences. First and foremost, there are obviously biological differences. Anatomy, bone density, levels of testosterone, estrogen, these are scientific biological differences that no one can deny. But the question is whether those biological differences are reflected 
in personhood as well. The fundamental shift that has taken place in our culture is the separation of our biology and our personhood. The terms we now use are sex and gender. Historically, those are one and the same. Now, they are not. Now, sex is your biology and gender is your identity. And while there may be a difference in sex, there is no difference in gender. Or better way, let me say that better. A better way to say that is gender differences or gender norms, the ones that do exist, are social constructs that we have created. Okay, the Bible takes issue with that and does teach a uniqueness, an innate uniqueness to male and female genders. But I thought what I would do is instead of unpacking that from Scripture, which I realize would not be a compelling argument to those who don't view the Bible like I do as a sacred and infallible book. Um, So instead of uh, arguing from Scripture, what I thought I would do was critique this cultural narrative on its own terms, playing by its own rules, because it's a self-defeating philosophy that I actually think is starting to um, unravel on its own. So consider transgenderism, for example. When a biological male identifies as a female, what are they identifying with? That's an important question. That is not a straw man argument. It is a profound issue for our culture that seeks to affirm transgenderism while renouncing gender norms. Perhaps nothing in our culture is reinforcing gender norms more than transgenderism itself. A biological male who identifies as a female is identifying with female stereotypes. A biological female who identifies as male is identifying with male stereotypes. In fact, it is precisely the gender stereotype itself that haunts their dysphoric soul. And by the way, I know that from talking to friends who struggle with gender dysphoria, that I absolutely, for the record, understand it's a very real um, struggle for some people. But it's, the, it's precisely the gender stereotype that they're struggling with. And so when they do transition, they are seeking what that transition is, is an attempt to embody stereotypes that our culture is simultaneously seeking to rid ourselves of. Either the gender binary is a thing or it's not. If it's not, then what are we to do with transgenderism that defines itself according to the binary? Now, there is, of course... To be fair, the emergence of non-binary or uh, genderqueer, if you are familiar with the literature, um, this this identity is 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 quickly taking over. But even there, when you read the literature and listen to these experiences, they are still defining themselves by the gender binary stereotypes. Meaning, someone who is non-binary doesn't fit the binary. But even still, they admit the binary by declaring they don't fit the binary, <laughs> or by declaring. They identify with attributes of both sides of the binary. If all of this sounds frustratingly circular, that's because it is. Here's the problem our society is facing right now. Gender in our culture is simultaneously nothing and everything. Let me say that again. This is, this is where this is, this is the struggle that we're going to keep on facing as this movement progresses. Gender in our culture is simultaneously nothing and everything. 
So I have a prediction. In the years to come, the strongest critique of the transgender movement is going to come from progressives, not conservatives, particularly feminists and the gay community. I've mentioned J.K. Rowling's comments about this on the podcast before, but they bear repeating. Rowling herself, of course, is a progressive feminist, and she shocked the world when she publicly pushed back against the transgender agenda. Responding to an op-ed, the op-ed was on the topic titled, People Who Menstruate. She tweeted, incredulously, she tweeted, people who menstruate? I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Well, not surprisingly, she got crushed. And then she doubled down. This is what she tweeted, quote, if sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. Now, you might say that she's talking about sex, not gender there. But then she goes on to say this. I respect every trans person's right to live any way that feels authentic and comfortable to them. I'd march with you if you were discriminated against on the basis of being trans. At the same time, my life has been shaped by being female. And of course, this only begs the question, what is female? Clearly, the extremely progressive J.K. Rowling thinks it's something, and she's not alone. read a fascinating piece this week by Katie Herzog, um, herself a married lesbian, entitled, Where Have All the Lesbians Gone? You can read it for yourself, but it's a scathing inside critique from an openly gay woman decrying what our culture is doing with gender. So here's my point. Even the LGBTQ community itself cannot escape the gender binary and unwittingly reinforces it with every new progress. There is a difference that goes beyond biology. Now, in a moment, I will hopefully show that we have overstated that difference in harmful ways, but there is a difference. So back to the topic of masculinity, for an example. While I reject the misogynistic visions of masculinity that Candace Owens and others are espousing for on Twitter as I speak, I reject it. And I still contend that when the Titanic is going down, men and women on the lifeboats first remains an innate nobility, not a social construct. Hey everyone, Robert here. Sorry, I obviously just misspoke there. I meant to say women and children on the lifeboats first is noble. Uh, men and women on the lifeboats leaving children on a sinking Titanic is obviously not noble. Sorry, back to the podcast. So there is a difference. But that being said, while there is a difference between male and female, what needs to be stated is that we, and I, I, I literally mean we, my camp, we have harmfully overstated that difference. This is what I mean when I say we need to redefine the meaning of alpha. I affirm gender differences, and I also denounce the unbiblical differences that we have placed upon gender. Our gender norms have been formed far more by the Industrial Revolution than a thoughtful, nuanced biblical worldview, and I'm not the first to point that out. What happened is when we moved away from an agrarian society, which agrarian cultures naturally get and enact gender really well because they're forced to. 
But what happened when vocation in our culture became industrialized, it dramatically changed the way we view gender. Men go off to workplace environments um, that had um, cultures of fraternity misogyny, you know, just good old boys clubs. Women stayed home to maybe cook a meal, do some chores, hang with the girls in trivial social clubs. Truth be told, our visions of gender are shaped more by what we see in the Mad Men television series than what we see in Scripture. So what do we find in Scripture? Again, there are innate differences, but there are more similarities than differences. Let me show you what I mean. Let's start with the feminine. When people think of biblical womanhood, if you're a Christian that's familiar with the Bible at all, you know the answer to this. What's the go-to passage? Proverbs 31, of course. Proverbs 31, woman. But have you ever considered the details of Proverbs 31? Because what emerges are characteristics that we normally associate with masculinity. Let me read some highlights. She, this woman, seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her matings, her maidens. So this is a hardworking tenacity and strength to provide for her family. But wait a minute. I thought men were the sole providers for the family. And by the way, this isn't just domestic provisions. If you continue on, it says she considers a field and buys it. So she's an investor. With the fruit of her hands, she plants vineyards, so she has calloused hands of a farmer. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. You heard that right. She makes her arms strong. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She's a savvy entrepreneur. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She's Literally, she's fighting the cause of justice. Listen to this. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Now, I thought men were the, the strength of the home, the strong, steady, confident ones, and the women were helpless and prone toward irrational anxieties and whatnot. Okay, no. <laughs> this is saying that strength is her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Do you see my point? Of course there is a lot, not just in Proverbs 31 and throughout Scripture, about the unique beauty and glory of the female gender. And yes, I do believe that female beauty and glory are uniquely innate in women. But the very passage that is the go-to passage on womanhood ascribes to females what we normally ascribe to males in our culture. Okay, now let's turn to the masculine. What is an alpha male according to Scripture? John Wayne, Don Draper, Joe Rogan. Well, let's start with Jesus himself. Dane Ortland has written an amazing book called Gentle and Lowly, Gentle and Lowly, that I highly recommend. Uh, get it. Read it over Christmas. The premise of the book is built off this fascinating observation that there is only one time when we are let in on the heart of Jesus. We know a lot about the words and deeds of Jesus, but what about the heart of Jesus? What, what the core of his being? What's Jesus like in his heart of hearts? Here we only have one verse. Let me read it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
Is that not amazing? This is the sovereign, omnipotent creator of heaven and earth, the eternal judge of the living and the dead. I think that qualifies as alpha. But when his heart is unveiled, it is gentle and lowly. And no, we're not reading too much into that verse. When Jesus gives his all-male disciples his attributes for their lives, they are the antithesis of cultural machismo. The poor in spirit, we think men are to be haughty in spirit. Those who mourn, we think men ought to be tough and rugged with stiff upper lips. The pure in heart, we think men should tell, you know, men will be boys be boys, tell sexual jokes, exploit for sexual gain. No, no, pure in heart, that's what manhood is. Blessed are the peacemakers. We think men are troublemakers, instigators, trolls on Twitter, snarky. Those who are persecuted. We think of men who are the fighters, themselves the persecutors. Beyond Jesus, let's go to the great apostle Paul, literally the alpha leader of early Christianity. His commandment to us is this. Clothe yourselves with, listen to these attributes, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, patience, and above all else, love. That does not sound like John Wayne to me. And when Paul describes his own ministry, this is what he says. We did not seek glory from people, whether from you or others. Now, stop there. I thought that's the life ambition of an alpha male, the pursuit of self-exaltation and power, aggressively so. He says we did not seek glory. Now listen to this. But instead... We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. End quote. The great apostle Paul. Is there room in your visions of masculinity for that? But here's the thing. No one would look at Jesus, Paul, the apostles, and say these are weak men. They retain their noble strength and courage, even unto death. And yes, they, they were entrusted. There was entrusted to them a unique authority within the church. And yes, there were times when Jesus had to flip some tables and Paul had to rebuke some churches. But by and large, that innate strength was a subversive strength used toward humble, meek, merciful, loving, gracious, even tender ends. So here's what emerges when it comes to biblical visions of gender. I wish I had a board to write on for you to see, but imagine it with me. What comes is a Venn diagram. So you picture two overlapping circles um, that are overlapping a lot, but yes, there is unique spaces that belong only to them, but sharing more commonality than differences. Our culture doesn't see a Venn diagram. They just see one circle. We're all the same. No binary whatsoever. Conservative evangelicals have wrongly advocated for a circle divided neatly in half. On one side, you have masculine norms and duties, and on the other side, you have feminine norms and duties. The Bible's view of gender is a Venn diagram with room for innate differences, but more overlap than we tend to admit in our culture. What does that look like? Perhaps it will help me to close with a practical example um, that, that embodies that uh, theology. And what I'll do is I'll use what's on everyone's heart and mind. Let's, let's talk about Christmas. When you think of the birth story of Jesus, who comes to mind most besides, of course, Jesus himself? Mary, right? Her faith, her strength, her determination. 
We Protestants obviously don't venerate her like our Catholic friends do, but no doubt she is the glory of the story outside the glory of God and Jesus himself. The angel said to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then Mary sings this song about how she has found this favor with the Lord and how all generations will call her blessed. I mean, this is some big stuff. She is the star of the show, again, outside of Jesus himself. What about Joseph? Where's Joseph in all this? You know where he is? He's the humble, reserved, yet resolute, supporting, protecting strength of the story. Not seeking glory or power or credit or any, any of these other things that we insecure men tend to seek after. He's none of that. Mary's glory is unmistakable Joseph's just easy to miss. But, and this is important, while Mary got the blessed announcement from on high, while Mary was the high and favored one chosen to bear the Messiah, when Herod seeks to kill the Messiah, who does the angel come to then? Joseph. Angel says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. When the child and mother are threatened, the angel comes to the father. The angel comes to the husband and tells the meek, humble, behind-the-scenes Joseph, you get your child and wife out of there. And it's Joseph who saved the lives of his wife and child. Mary's the glory, Joseph's the chivalry, and in between, they share a lot in common. That's what the Bible has to say about gender. And that's what I meant to say on Twitter. Um, I hope that helps. I hope it adds uh, to the discussion, gives uh, a much-needed Christian perspective on this most important issue of our time. Okay, God bless you all. We'll be back soon for another episode of Every Square Inch. Mm-hmm.